turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to welcome you this morning. If you're a visitor here for the first time, uh, I'm going to give you a little context of what we're doing this morning. Uh, or if you're here with some family members for baptisms and things like that, just want to let you know that we are really, really, really glad that you are sharing your morning with us. We don't count that a small thing. Um, I want to just let you know that in some ways you're stepping into the middle of a conversation. It's a conversation that began around the beginning of January. We've been in Hebrews for some time, but the beginning of January, we started unpacking a section of scripture in the book of Hebrews. So if you'd like to turn your Bible, in fact, I'd strongly encourage you to turn your Bible to, let's start with chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 10, but just for the sake of some context, turn to chapter 4. The first Sunday in January, we began a journey through a section in Hebrews that would be called exposition. If you've walked with us for a period of time, you know that oftentimes we talk about exposition and exhortation. That as the scripture is exposed, then we should exhort. And we do that in sermons every single week. The Hebrews preacher does that throughout this letter. This letter in many ways is one big fat sermon. And we just considered a big section of exposition that began in Hebrews chapter 4. Let me turn there, and for the sake of context, I will get us all up to speed so we can spend some time together this morning on a pretty potent exhortation. We began in chapter 4, verse 14, in the early part of the, uh, the year. Since then, we, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Pay attention to some words here. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is sort of a bookend. I want you to consider it a bookend this morning that we began to engage back in January. And you're going to see this morning where we're going. You're going to see the other bookend. We're going to expose the second bookend in light of these three months, three and a half months that we've spent together exposing this center section between the bookends. Some of the things that we've done, you, could, you can go ahead and turn over to chapter 10 where we'll be this morning. Some of the things that we've gathered up in these last few months is Christ is a better high priest. You read it, you heard it from a passage I just read there in chapter 4, verse 14. Christ is a better high priest. Some context, apparently this church, the Hebrews church, we believe to be in Rome. We don't know that for absolute sure. But what we do feel pretty sure about is it looks like they're bailing on Christianity. This church is what would be called a Messianic Jewish church today. Largely Jewish folks that have believed that Christ is the Messiah and are trusting in him as Savior and Lord. But it looks like in their context that being, being a Christian is really hard. You can imagine in Rome being a Christian in the first century A.D. would be a very, very difficult place to worship. You can imagine the persecution that they faced. You can imagine the persecution they faced not only from Rome but from Jews Turncoats. I mean, imagine what they would have been considered. Turning on Judaism, faithful Judaism for this Jesus. And this Hebrews preacher is reminding this church, don't fall back. Don't trade your birthright for a bowl of soup and go back to Judaism. And here's he's developing this argument over these chapters. And the first thing we considered was Christ is a better high priest. Secondly, we found that he is a better, his is of a better order Chapter 7, the order of Melchizedek. He's not even of the Aaronic, Aaron line. He's of an altogether different order, the order of Melchizedek. And third, we found in him we have a better hope. In chapter 7, verse 19. In chapter 7, verse 22, we found that he mediates a better covenant. What a sweet two mornings we had on that. We had a re-preach on that one. We're going to consider that one again. This new covenant is so fine. And so much better than the old. We consider, too, that he ministers in a better tent, not a tabernacle. That's a shadow of the things to come. Not something made with human hands, but the high court of heaven. A better tent, the true one, not a shadow in chapter 8. 
Also in chapter 8, we found that his is a better ministry than the Levites. In chapter 9, we found that his blood is better. Also in chapter 9, we found that his salvation is better. And in chapter 10, just this last week, we found that his sacrifice is better. His work was and is so fine, it in fact did something that a million bulls and goats could never do. It purified our conscience from dead works. Listen to this passage in chapter 9, really sort of the centerpiece of this entire section. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? His sacrifice, his one sacrifice did something that a million bulls and goats, the blood of a million bulls and goats could never do. We don't have to hide in the garden anymore. We don't have to fashion fig leaves to cover our sin. For our high priest offered himself up, his body broken and torn, the perfect sacrifice offered for imperfect people making for good standing with a now satisfied God. Amen? Those of you that are on that journey, man, what a beautiful time it's been. We've done the hard work to really enjoy where we're going this morning. In chapter 10, verse 19 is where I'll begin. Listen to some words that you've already heard at the first bookends, some familiar words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are three let us's in this passage that we're going to consider between this Sunday and next. Three let let us's that have really been the finish line for me as we've pushed through these last few months of really hard exposition and hard work and even hard hearing. Not just hard preaching, but hard study and hard hearing. I've been pushing forward toward these three let us's because they are so fine. This morning, we're just going to consider the first let us. Let us draw near. So that we're saturated with the passage, I'm going to read just where we're going this morning. We're going to sort of hone in a little closer, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The plan for the morning is to expose this lightly. Lightly first. And then we're going to come back and take a closer look at some really important considerations. And then we're going to end the morning leading right into our Lord's Supper time with an illustration, a Bible-wide illustration of what it means to draw near what we have in Christ. So let's begin just unpacking this passage. Just three things I want you to see in verses 19, verses 20, and verse 22. First of all, in verse 19... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Let me tell you something. The Hebrews preacher, I want to remind you, is reminding a church that's considering falling back into Judaism with the reality that in Christ we have confidence to enter God's presence. Now, let me tell you something. If you were to ask Jew X about the first thousand words that he would associate with the presence of God, confidence would not be in that list. Confidence is a striking word in this context where we're talking about access to a holy God. 
It was such limited access to God's presence. The high priest entered only once a year and only after a really good cleaning and only wearing appropriate, tidy, white linen garments. And he better not empty or uh, enter empty-handed or he wouldn't leave. He better enter with some blood to atone for his own sins and the sins of the people. I can't imagine that confidence would have been a word that he's thinking as he's stepping into the Holy of Holies. He actually had to have bells sewn into his garments so they would know if he croaked in there. If you stopped hearing the bells, you're like, oh, we lost another high priest. Now, I don't know that that ever happened. But that's the purpose of the bells, so you could hear him in there doing his work. I don't imagine confidence would be in that list of things that he's thinking as he goes into the Holy of Holies. Confidence wouldn't be in the first thousand words you'd associate with the presence of the Lord. Yet here it is in all its glory, the word. Confidence. That's what we have in Christ. Look at verse 20. Second thing to lightly call attention to. Not light as in importance, but light, a light exposition. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This confident access that we have to the Father now is through Jesus alone. I so enjoyed Jake this morning mentioning John 14. It's a treasure for us as a church when we work through the book of John, John 14 Jesus is teaching on the night before he's, actually the night that he's arrested, that evening. He's telling them, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm not going to put on a, a belt, you know, in a construction carpenter's belt and go build a heaven for you. I'm going to go to a cross and prepare a place for you. That's where he's going to prepare a place for you. He says, I'm going someplace that you can't go just yet. And then they start to ask some questions. Thomas, we can appreciate says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We consider together as a church that the unit of measurement for the width of the narrow way, if you want to impose some other passages on this context, that the way is narrow that leads to life, the way is wide that leads to death. Many find it, few find the narrow way. The narrow way is one Jesus wide. It's one Jesus wide, period. That's the only unit, and that's the only way through is through Jesus. And here we see this connection that it's through, not only through Jesus, it's through a torn Jesus. There's no coincidence that the veil was torn from top to bottom at his crucifixion because that's what he achieved for us through his torn flesh, access to the Father. And then look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Something that's lost here in this translation that we can bring out with just a little bit of work is let us draw near is in the present tense. I found a translation that I really appreciated from a commentator where he said, he translated this, let us continue drawing near. If it's present tense, then that nicely fits with the concept of the tense of the verb, fits with the concept of an ongoing action of drawing near. The notion of a one-time transaction with God securing salvation is very different from the mindset of an ongoing relationship where we continue drawing near to God through this torn flesh, one Jesus wide. Let us continue drawing near. We can enjoy together a passage that we just considered recently, how beautiful this is, this concept of drawing near and continuing to draw near in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. We could say continue to draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The good news is that he is saving those who are continuing to draw near. Now, as for the important considerations, 
There are three important considerations that I want to look at in these next few minutes before we move to this illustration of the mindset or the realities of drawing near. Here's the first consideration. There are lots of plurals in this passage. If for some reason I've taken you away from Hebrews, go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and look at the plurals in this passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Don't miss the plurals in this passage because they have significant meaning. Brothers, we have confidence. He opened for us. We have a great priest. Let us draw near. Even the verb draw near is plural. Let us continue drawing near. Our hearts sprinkled, our bodies washed. This suggests that the realities of the gospel, this beauty of drawing near to God, are best enjoyed and considered and applied in fellowship with some us's, with some we's, with some other hearts, with some other bodies that have been sprinkled clean. Turn to 1 John. This is not going to be a re-preach, but this is just too good. Derek, this was just a lob. I mean, y'all know me and my sports illustrations. I got lots of sports illustrations. This was like an alley-oop, you know, where that ball is just hanging right next to the net that I'm going to consider just for a moment. In 1 John chapter 1, Derek last week preached 1 John chapter 1. And this passage that really stood out, he developed this picture that this passage is void of the word salvation, but instead it uses the word fellowship. Listen to what he develops here. He says, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched this Jesus, this life that was made manifest, so that in verse 3, we proclaim this, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here, and what Derek developed last week, and I want to redevelop, I want to throw it out there again so that we can truly enjoy it, is the concept, the mindset of enjoying God, apart from enjoying an us, is not in our Bibles. It is a contextual lie. I mean context as in this context that we live in. It is an epidemic lie in the context that we live in. Yes, I love Jesus, but I have no use for his people. I can't find any that quite suit me. That is is not from our Bibles, Crosspoint. Let me show you some additional passages from this chapter or this 1 John book. Whoever says he's in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. I love Jesus, but I have no use for my brother. In fact, I hate him. I, have no, I can't engage him. I can't spend time with him. I can't go the distance with him. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to love one another, just as he commanded us, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us for the spirit whom he has given us. If you don't have some us's that you're walking with as in a church, then according to our Bibles, you don't even know God. According to our Bibles, you're a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Chapter 4, verse 20. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen and touched and bumped into and smelled his B.O. and seen him on his worst day and been offended by him and offended in return. He who says he doesn't love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Boom. Boom. Wow. All the plurals in there start to make a lot of sense. And we live in a Bible Belt context where there's an epidemic of thinking, I love Jesus, but I can't find a church that quite suits me. I can't find a pastor that doesn't bother me sometimes. 
preachers. I can't find a deacon that doesn't have some um, hypocrisy going on in his life. Man, it's funny how attentive we are to other people's problems, yet we are oblivious and so graceful with our own in the church context. Man, I can't, I'm thinking about this hyper-revival context that we live in. Hyper-revivaled as in, I would say, now this is a caricature and it's unfair, but in large part in our context, and this is what I hear from folks that have been in other churches in our context, they're coming to our church saying, I'm hungry, I'm tired of hearing one more time how I can become saved on a Sunday. I want to understand what it means to be saved, to be a disciple. Don't convert me, don't Don't make me yet another decision. Show me how to be a disciple. This is what I'm hearing, that these buildings are largely revival tents that have been bricked over, and we call them a church. And people are malnourished and underfed in a hyper-revival context. And the product of that is that people have a false assurance that these guys are entertaining at home because once they've made their decision, why bother with people? Me and God, we're square. I don't need people. Man, this guy that's believing this lie on the corner that's not engaging a people, is not known or knowing, he loves a Jesus of his own making. Not the Jesus that will come back and get his bride. Come back and get real people that are seeing and touching each other. His bride. Man, I can't imagine Satan would like anything more than to trick people into believing you can love Jesus and receive his grace without then relentlessly, albeit clumsily, applying that grace and walking with his ordinary old smelly people. Man, our Bibles are full of letters and narratives and books that are written to a people. In rare occasion in our Bible is a book written to an individual. Rare occasion. First and Second Timothy, Titus, written to an individual pastor, not Greenville Gary hanging out on the at home right now, because he's got no use for the bride. And I'm not picking on Gary. Where's Gary? I hate using that. Man, these letters are written to the church. And it's letters, these Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 John, Jude, and Revelations are written to churches. There's a couple other letters that are written written to individuals. Philemon, written to a dude who was a leader in the Colossian church. 2 John and 3 John are also written to individuals. The elect lady and Gaius who are in the church. It's inappropriate for us to let people entertain that without lovingly speak the truth into their lives. Some of you might feel like, man, I got ambushed this morning. I hadn't been in church in a long time, and I was invited, and I totally got ambushed. I would argue that you haven't been ambushed. You're here by divine appointment. I would argue that the Holy Spirit orchestrated your agreement to show up here this morning and hear the exposition of the word, not an opinion that encourages you to engage a people faithfully, to know and be known, to be among some we's, some us's, some hearts that are sprinkled, some bodies that are washed, some brothers. Man, he's coming back for the we's and the us's and the brothers. He's coming back for the sprinkled hearts and the washed bodies of his people. So these plural words in this passage are uber appropriate. Now, Check this out. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Keeping all those plural words in mind, the brothers, the we's, the us's, the hearts, the bodies, the hearts that are sprinkled, the bodies that are washed, keeping even the drawing near being plural in mind. Let's look at the second thing I want you to consider here in verse 22. Let us, there it is, keep all those, import all those us's and plurals into this, these next words, draw near, plural, with A true heart in full assurance of faith. I'm going to unpack that just for a minute. That is just, that is rich with some serious truth. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. First of all, the plural 
drawers, not drawers, drawers. Coco, you got to kick out of that. You're laughing a little too hard. The plural drawers come together, drawing together in one true heart. Not a collection of hearts, but in one true corporate heart. All these plurals condense into one true heart. That's what it means to be the church right there. All these plural drawers condense. See, even in the next phrase in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. All these plurals condense into this concept of the church being together as one unit, a true and genuine, that's what that word means, true, genuine and sincere heart. That's what we become when we draw near together. One of the cool things here, I don't know if you're, you're probably not in Hebrews. Go back there to Hebrews. You probably just want to keep like a bookmark or something in there because we're going to look at this for a minute. This true heart is more than just an attitude. It's more than just an attitude of being sincere and genuine. Now, if that's all it was, that would still be pretty cool. But it's more than that. Let me show you the heart that we're talking about. Just last week, we were considering the first part of Hebrews chapter 10. We also looked over in Hebrews chapter 8, where the Hebrews preacher is reminding the Hebrews church of the new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. This new covenant is so sublime that we spent two Sundays on it. It's so fine that it makes robo-worshippers of us. Remember that? Those of you that were here, those of you that weren't, it's online, you can hear it. The worst illustration in history. But it's so fine, it does something with the new covenant worshiper that the old covenant worshiper didn't have. Three things, it deals with the heart. It takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And it writes the law on that heart and deposits the Holy Spirit into that life. Secondly, it gives access from the least to the greatest. A beautiful thing, what we're going to consider later this morning. And third, sins are forgiven absolutely and completely and forevermore. No need for more sacrifices, not under this new covenant. This new covenant is so fine. He's just mentioned a few verses earlier in chapter 10. Look at this. Verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. If this true heart that he was talking about that is condensing from all these plurals was just a genuine and sincere one, now that would be really beautiful. But he takes it well beyond that. It's not an attitude, just an attitude. This is the new covenant heart. This is the new heart that he's been talking about for these last couple of chapters that we come together drawing near with this True heart. He used the same word when he was talking about the true tent that Jesus ministers in. And here we are, he's talking about the true heart is experienced corporately as we draw near. Man, that's fine. We draw near with a true heart, as true as the tent he ministers in. Now, The true heart that we draw near with, there we find full assurance of faith. It's funny to me how often assurance comes up. A church that embraces the doctrines of grace, a church that embraces God's sovereignty front to back, through and through, a a, a church that believes in God's providence, it comes up so often this question of assurance. Well, how can we find assurance? Well, this is a nice passage to help you with where to find assurance. You find assurance in the corporate experience as all these plurals are condensed into this like-minded, one true heart, this new covenant heart. It's there we find and experience assurance. We draw near with one true heart and find assurance there. Man, as I was working on this portion of the sermon, 
I was thinking about this plural connection for assurance. And I was thinking about a song that I used to sing when I was growing up in church. Grew up in a very traditional Baptist church. My parents are still there. I love this church. This is not a condemnation of this church at all. I love this church. God is using this ministry in Pineville, Louisiana. First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. One of the songs we grew up singing was the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. A lot of y'all probably know this song. I have decided to follow Jesus. You know the song. And there's one of the, the lines in there that just stood out to me as I'm thinking this plural assurance, this assurance that comes from this condensing of all these plurals into this one heart. And I thought about the line, though none go with me, I still will follow. And I'm like, okay, I, I treasure that song. I grew it singing, you know, I grew up singing it. But that line doesn't sound like it fits with all these plurals in Hebrews, where assurance comes as the people of God together draw near. I'm like, that, that line sort of sticks out as funny. And now, ironically, that line sounds strangely familiar to what Peter said. Oh, Jesus, I will never forsake you. How'd that work out for Peter? I, though none go with me, I still will follow. How'd that work out, Peter? Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> How'd that go for you? Man, I'm looking at this through the lens of this Hebrews passage, and I'm going, man, we find assurance together. The full assurance comes when the corporate we's, us's, hearts, bodies, all those gather together with one true heart and draw near. That's where assurance comes from. Greenville Gary hanging out at home, he's believing a lie. There's no assurance at home. You've got to be up next to some bodies. You've got to have some we's. That's where you find full assurance of faith. Man, ironically, Peter found restoration and assurance with his brothers on the seashore with a mouthful of fish a few days later. Not by himself. Assurance comes together. Full assurance comes together as the people of God draw near. Man, I think that's why it hurts so much when someone leaves the table. Because you found assurance together and someone leaves the table and you go, oh, that hurts my assurance. That's why that hurts so bad. Is because together we drew near and we found assurance. And y'all be encouraged and know that we have to continue to relentlessly draw near together and don't see it as an isolated thing. Do you have access to God on your own? Absolutely. From the least to the greatest. In the least significant moment to the greatest significant, most significant moment. But see what the Hebrews preacher, where he's taking them right here, he's taking them to the church, drawing near together and there finding full assurance. Scott reminded me of a passage in Romans 15. Listen to this. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together... The we's, the us's, the brothers, the bodies, the hearts, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> with one voice and one true heart. Man, that's good medicine right there. Now, the third thing I wanted you to see this morning is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We couldn't have had a baptism on a more appropriate day. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. I never imagined that I would be talking about baptism and having anyone turn to the book of Ezekiel. But I'm about to show you something really cool. It connects to this new heart and this new covenant that the Hebrews preacher is reminding them of. In fact, it was only a few weeks ago that I read from Ezekiel chapter 36 talking about the heart of stone being removed and being replaced with the heart of flesh. Okay, Connect all that, the purified conscience, connect what Scott read from 1 Peter this morning 
that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Connect the purified, cleansed conscience now to this passage in Ezekiel. I'm going to begin in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Beautiful connections where this new heart is connected to good old-fashioned I want to get somebody wet. Like, get all y'all wet. Water! This thing that we did up here is not just a ceremony. God tells us to do it because it connects to the realities of the gospel. A purified conscience and sprinkled bodies. Do you know that sacrifices before they were offered on the altar were washed with water? We had four little sacrifices this morning washed. Brooks Petzold, Ava Huck. Abby Wetzel, Avery Hudgens. Four little sacrifices that were cleansed right here with good old water because God took out their heart of stone and has put in a heart of flesh right here from this passage. Is that beautiful? Are you enjoying that with me? That we had a chance together to walk in that. Now, we're going to spend the next few minutes, just a few minutes, illustrating the realities of drawing near. Okay? I want you to indulge me for a minute with a passage of Scripture, actually a couple passages of Scripture, that you may never think of, you likely would never think of. Turn to Numbers chapter 5. Back there, way back in the dusty old section of your Bibles. Numbers chapter 5. And I want you to indulge me as we consider some of those people that were excluded from the presence of God in the camp. And then some of those candidates for the priesthood that were excluded from the priesthood for various reasons. If you go the distance with me in this, you have a significant tree here in a few minutes. So if, you, if you're, you know, you're kind of like, okay, it's Easter morning, I had a little chocolate. Maybe chocolate would actually keep you awake. So if you have some, pop some chocolate. I'm, not, I'm kidding. I don't see many of you sleeping. All right. I want to remind you of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 said the law is a shadow of the good things to come. So we can go to the law. We can go to these dusty pages to make sense of what we have in Christ. So let's go to the dusty pages. Numbers chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp... Everyone who is, watch the categories, there's three of them here. Everyone who's leprous, if, if you take notes, maybe jot that down. Everyone who's leprous, put him out of the camp. Anyone who has a discharge, put him out of the camp. And anyone who is unclean through contact with the dead, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did so. Now, there were medical reasons for this. I mean, we want to address that. If someone is contagious and died from some contagious disease and you're the family member that's tending to them, you probably need to hang out outside the camp for a while so the whole camp's not wiped out. If you have some sort of skin disease that's contagious, it's probably better that you're outside the camp so you don't give the whole camp this leprosy. It, it didn't have to be necessarily your, your nose hanging off. It could just be some sort of skin disease. If you had some of those, you had discharge, and for some reason, you know, that's, that, that's contagious, get out of the camp. So it clearly had some medical reasons. But more important than the medical reasons were the theological reasons reasons. Look at what it says in this passage. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp 
in the midst of which I dwell. More than for medical reasons, it's get them outside the camp because I'm holy and they're defiled. What might be hard for you is thinking, well, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong. Defilement in our Old Testament, in the shadow that the Hebrews preacher is talking about, defilement is depicted two ways. It's depicted as transgression, just overt transgression, somebody doing something wrong. But it's also depicted in these ailments, in these defilements, whether it's skin disease or any of these others that we've looked at. Put them outside the camp because I'm holy and they're defiled. I'm holy and they're not, so remove them from the camp. I want you to just personalize this for a minute. And imagine that your little son, little Johnny, comes to you and says, Hey, Dad, um, I got this thing on my arm here. It's really itchy. And you're like, ooh, hmm, I hope it's poison ivy because that will be cleared up in a couple days. And then a couple days later, it's spread. And you're like, oh, no, Johnny, this looks like some, some form of leprosy. We've got to put you outside the camp, out there into the wilds, out there into the, away from the safety of the camp. Personalize this for a minute and climb into this and imagine what that would be like for you as a parent. And imagine, kids, what that would be like for you as little Johnny. You're like, oh, man, I'm put outside the camp because God is holy and I'm defiled. They had a 1,500-year tutor in the shadow that's going to show us something here in a minute if you go the distance. Put them outside the camp. Think for a minute, too, about what sacrifices had to offer these people. Those who touched a dead body handled some sort of contaminated, contagious body. Those who had a discharge. Those who, what was the, the third thing? Those who were lepers. What did the sacrifices have to offer them? Zippo. Zilch. You could sacrifice all day long and your leprosy is still there. You can't cleanse the leprosy. You could sacrifice all day long and the discharge is still happening. The, The blood of a thousand bulls and goats could not make it to where they could somehow stay in the camp. So remove them from the camp. You know what's interesting too about all this defilement? It's not just the person that's defiled, but anyone that even touches them becomes defiled. Defilement is contagious. You touch a dead body... And then you go touch somebody else, and now they're defiled. There's whole chapters in Leviticus that are dedicated to, 14 and 15 are dedicated to leprosy and discharges. If someone has a discharge and they touch a bed, and you go touch the bed, now you're defiled. Defilement is contagious. It doesn't move in the direction of cleanness. It moves in the direction of contagion. If I'm defiled and I touch you now, you're defiled. Now remember, this is a shadow that's going to show us something. Now, turn to Leviticus chapter 21. I'm going to show you another few categories. Indulge me, I promise you. If you go the distance in this, you have a treasure and treat in store. As I was studying this, in fact, we were at a a conference last week. The elders and their wives, we went to a conference out in Louisville, Kentucky. And a guy named Ligon Duncan was preaching on what Christ has done for us and the the impetus to go outside the camp to the leprous and the sick and the needy. And he exposed that Numbers 5 passage and some passages I'm going to show you in in, uh, the book of Luke. But I was thinking beyond that, I was thinking about what about the deaf and the blind and the lame? I mean, the leprous, the one who has a discharge, the one who's touched a dead body, man, they clearly are removed from the camp. But consider those who would be candidates for the priesthood. Consider the Levites. Just imagine that you're a Levite family here for a moment. Consider the requirements or the things that would exclude you from consideration to be a priest. Starting in verse 16 of Leviticus 21. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. A blemish. Anybody got any blemishes? Remember, I want you to think like a Levite family right now. And you're like, oh, okay, there's about three of us that can be a Levite, apparently. (laughs) But it goes on. He gets more detailed. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, 
Or one who has a mutilated face. That may be less common. Blindness would have been a lot more common then than it is now, too, because they didn't have laser, laser surgery, and they didn't have doc, eye doctors, and they didn't have glasses. You know, I think Ben Franklin made the glasses, didn't he? Somebody. They didn't have that. So there may have been crowds of blind people. Crowds of people that would have some form of blemish. One who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. I don't know what's going on with that last one, but this is weird stuff. <laughs> it's a long list. <laughs> like, man, not many of the Levites apparently can actually serve. In the tabernacle, in the presence of God, because they apparently are defiled. Let me continue on. I got a little, little, little um, thrown off with that last one. <laughs> no man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to the priest who has a who, to offer the Lord's food offerings, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. I hope you were paying attention in there to see the two words, draw near. You have a blemish, you can't draw near. Ask the question again. Anybody have any blemishes? Now turn to Luke chapter 5. Now for the goods. Luke chapter 5. We're going to stay in Luke for the rest of the morning just for a few minutes. Luke chapter 5. Now remember our categories. Leprosy. One who has a discharge. One who's touched a dead body. Or one who's blind or has some sort of blemish. You know, long list. Any sort of deformities there, any sort of blemish. Bring those into now the Gospels. You may have heard the miracles taught or preached a million times and never thought about this, so pay really close attention to what's about to happen. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Not just a wee bit on his forearm, apparently. Full of it. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, maybe you can do something that the law has never been able to do for me throughout my whole lifetime or for anyone else who's ever had leprosy for 1,500 years. Lord, maybe you can actually make me clean because nothing else can. The blood of a 1,000 bulls and goats can't do that. So, Lord, can you... Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He touched him. Think about that for a minute. Don't you think everybody around him is going, no, Jesus, no, 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 no. Don't touch him, don't touch him, don't touch him. Oh, he touched him. He's going to be unclean now. But that didn't happen, did it? I told you. This, this defilement is contagious. This uncleanness is contagious. But when Jesus touches somebody, it doesn't move to where he's defiled. He actually makes them clean. He does what the law could never do. He touched him. And he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Ha! A thousand bulls and goats could never do what he did in a split second. I will be clean. Now, turn to Luke chapter 8, just a few pages over. Remember our categories. We've got the lepers covered. He's got goods for lepers. Let's see what else he's got. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they all were waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Okay, kind of park her for a minute. 
little Jairus' daughter. Put her in your mind because we're going to come back to her in a second. Remember, she's dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And remember, did the law have anything to offer her? Could some sacrifices help her? She had a discharge for 12 years. Don't you think she would have done that? <laughs> if it's sacrifice to the sacrificial system, the law could do something for me, man. I'm going to do it. The law really, the only, the only thing it served to do was to create separation between God and his people. That's all the law served to do. This woman had a discharge for 12 years. Don't you imagine she's an outcast? Don't you imagine she's considered unclean? At this point, there's no camp. We're talking cities. And I'm sure in 1,500 years, the expectations there had relaxed to some degree where there might actually be some people that had some uncleanness walking through a city. And there's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, though she spent all her living on physicians. Luke was a physician, by the way. Don't you think he... I wonder if he'd spend any money with her or she'd spend any money with him. Spent all her money on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We got the lepers tended to. We got those that have a discharge tended to. The law couldn't do anything for them. Let's look at the dead. Anybody got anything for some dead people? Let's see what happens next. While he's still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Ah, sorry, dude. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. If you'd have been in a crowd, you probably would have done what they did next. They snickered. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They've been weeping and mourning. Seconds later, Jesus says something and they laugh. Mockery. That's ridiculous. I'm sad about this little girl, but you're a clown. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand. He's not made unclean in taking this little dead girl by the hand like the rest of humankind is. He's not defiled by this. He takes her by the hand and he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. I like that. Feed that girl. And her parents were amazed. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Man, these gospels are saturated with this. This thing that over and over we saw in the law that had, the law had no remedy for it. It just separated people from God and even from each other. Jesus shows up and he says, I'll touch them. I'll make them clean. I'll do what the law could never do. Look at the next one, Luke 18. Luke 18. Beginning in verse 35. I'm going to ask you the question as you're turning there. I want you to keep this. I want you to start to, hopefully you're starting to personalize this. And let me ask you, do you have any sort of defects do you have any sort of blemishes? Do you have anything going on in your heart where you've been defiled? Do you have anything that's happened to you that you need Christ to touch you? 
keep that question in mind just for a minute as we consider this next one. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This guy would not have been able to draw near if he had been a Levite. Excluded. No good. Damaged goods. Hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Imagine this dude belts it out. It's my only hope. The law has never been able to help my vision. Luke, the physician, never had, had never had anything for my vision. Maybe Jesus can. Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him. Hush. Tell him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When Jesus shows up, the lepers are cleansed, discharges are healed. Dead are cleansed and called to life. The blind are healed and cleansed to then go worship and draw near. Our gospels are saturated with these examples. Mark 7, a deaf guy and possessed girl. Mark 10, a blind Bartimaeus. John 5, the lame guy that was lame 38 years by the pool of Siloam. John 9, another man born blind. They are saturated with these pictures, these these healings that show us what God has done for us in Christ with the worst ailment that humankind has ever known, the human heart. He has healed the dark conscience in a way that the law never could. Whenever John the Baptist, I guess, was sort of unsure if Jesus was in fact the one that was called, the one that was the promised one, he sent some of his disciples to go ask Jesus, hey, are you the one? Jesus said to John the Baptist, or to his disciples, he said, Go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Man, the Gospels are not just full of some nice tricks. The Gospels are full of the answer to the problem of the law and the answer to the problem of the human heart. Example after example where he shows what he's done in our crippled hearts. He makes us clean when the blood of a million bulls and goats couldn't with that one sacrifice. And the only appropriate response, according to the Hebrews preacher, is draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With Bring your flaws. Bring your blemishes. Bring your disease. Bring your defilement. Bring your eight kajillion reasons to not draw close to God. And Jesus will touch them. He says, I'll touch them. Nobody else will but I'll touch them and I'll cleanse them. And I want to encourage you how to do this. You do this with the people. Relentlessly, faithfully, you do this with regular old folks, ordinary folks, and I promise you, if you want to know how do I draw near, I'm seeing the beauty of it. I'm seeing that that's what he achieved for us and I want to draw near. How do I go about doing that? First of all, you do it with the people. You do it with some we's and some us's and some bodies, and some hearts. And I promise you, it's going to feel ordinary. I promise you. I promise you this is going to be clumsy. I promise you this, you're going to disappoint each other, but yet you're going to encourage each other when you see Christ at work in each other's lives. I promise you this is going to be unimpressive. 
But that is first and foremost the way that we draw near. Secondly, draw near as families and small groups. Also unimpressive. If you've ever sat with your family in the den and read the Bible to them, the angels are not singing. <laughs> you know, you watch a movie and the soundtrack's behind every scene and it just adds this emotion to all of it. Well, there's, it's quiet. And on the inside, you're, you're, you're thinking, is this anything? <laughs> is this anything? I promise you that. It's going to feel unimpressive. But that's how you draw near as families. Reading talking and praying from the least to the greatest from the four little ones that were baptized today to the one that one of you that's been a Christian the longest you get to draw near together man do it as small groups that's all you got I mean we have fellowship that's great fellowship as Derek defined it last week we have fellowship indeed and where we rally around fellowship is we read together, we study together, we pray together. That's all we got. <laughs> That's all we got, but it's everything. And then lastly, personal study time and prayer. I put that last because that's you have access personally. But the thought of going alone as a renegade and a maverick for long as an identity is foreign from our Bibles. You can certainly do that on a daily basis, though. Sit and read. Sit and pray, sit and draw near and enjoy the scandalous access that we have. That's what the Hebrews preachers encouraging them with. I hope that we're encouraged with that today. We're going to take our supper, and I'm going to share a parable in preparation for our supper. From Luke chapter 15, if you'd like to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. Very fitting parable. Luke chapter 14, I hope that's what I said. Beginning in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. Invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, uh, he must have been wondering, uh, these, these folks are all unclean. Everybody you just mentioned is sort of, they don't have access for one reason or another. <laughs> are you sure about that list? Well... One of those reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to him, blessed is everyone. He must have wanted to change the subject. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. And I must go out and tend to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets, to the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor. Bring in the crippled. Bring in the blind. Bring in the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. Still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited first shall taste my banquet. I want you to see this banquet that we take each week as this banquet. The banquet that plenty of people have been invited to in 2,000 years. But the banquet that's for the crippled, who know they're crippled apart from Christ. The banquet that's for the, the leprous, that know that apart from Christ they're unclean. 
the banquet for the blind, that know that without Christ they have no sight. Man, this is our meal. A bunch of cripples and hunchbacks. I'm going to pray and then we'll distribute the elements and we'll take and eat. God, what a sweet, sweet, good message. Good news you have for us in what Christ accomplished. Lord, I'm thankful for these chapters and books full of illustrations that show us what he's done for our hearts. I'm thankful that he's given us a new heart in this new covenant. I'm thankful that he's given us access from the least to the greatest. I'm thankful that you have separated our sin as far as the east is from the west, that Christ achieved all those things in his cross and his resurrection. What an appropriate way to spend our morning together on Easter morning, enjoying your son, having done such a profound work. God, we enjoy you so much. We enjoy, too, seeing the reality of our lameness and our blemishes and our infirmities. We trumpet those, in fact, to show that you and enjoy that you choose the foolish things that confound the wise. We together, a bunch of foolish unlikelies, want to take together and eat at a banquet that we should have never been invited to because of what Christ has done. In his name we pray.